Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. Today we're with Drs. West Avram, Mike Hegeman, and Pastor Terrilyn Lawson discussing the Lord's Prayer. Check out our website at www.framparkcenter.org for more information about upcoming events and ways to give. I'm Wes Avram. I'm here with Terrilyn Lawson and Mike Hegeman, and we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. Theologian Stanley Harawas once wrote that if someone asks you what Christians believe, your best answer is, I don't know what Christians believe, but I can show you what they do, and then pray the Lord's Prayer with them. The Lord's Prayer is the essential prayer of Christian faith, summarizing everything we believe and do as believers. A a prayer that we learn in our youth sometimes if we grow up in the church, that we may first encounter as an adult, that's prayed in worship by the Christian community in all kinds of different ways, in different languages, in different versions. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I've already said the prayer in ways that are unique to that, that just to a couple of traditions. Some traditions say trespasses instead of debts. Others say sin. Some leave off the last line because it doesn't seem to appear in the earliest versions of Scripture. But in any case, it's a prayer that Jesus taught, found in the New Testament, a prayer he taught his disciples. So he doesn't talk about himself in the prayer, but it's a prayer that has been prayed ever since. Uh, Mike, you've done a little work on the Lord's Prayer and know its history a little bit. Tell us about the prayer and how it's been received in the English world. You know, what's funny is that I don't think people think too much about the Lord's Prayer until you try to change a word. And then all of a sudden, uh, people come out of the woodworks and saying, we've been praying it this way for thousands of years. That's a direct quote. We've been praying this way for thousands of years. Why are you changing it now? And that comment, it, it, what it taps into is that this prayer is written into the subconscious, I mean, the deep memory for many people. You know, they learned it either, as you said, when they were young in a confirmation class or some other setting, they embody the cadence of this prayer in worship. And they don't, they may not think about it as they're doing it, but as soon as we change thy to your, uh, thee to to you, uh, that all of a sudden people, they get very uncomfortable and think we are changing the Bible in some way. And so, I don't know if my if I can do all the research on the history of this prayer and I could go back and look at it all and present all the evidence of the many ways this has been prayed, it still might not be satisfying for some. But I love that kind of research and going back and looking at it, uh, that we see that there are two different versions of this prayer in the New Testament. And these are the earliest records of this that we have in Matthew. We get a slightly longer version and Luke a slightly shorter version, uh, essentially the same. But there are phrases missing from Luke's that are in Matthew's. And over the years, there's an amalgam that comes together. 
And that last phrase we see, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, is added in a document we call the Didache. And this is a kind of a handbook of how to be Christian in the first century. And uh, uh, somebody took those two prayers from Matthew and Luke and brought them together and added a line, a description of praise. Of course, then that's in Greek language, and we think then it got translated into Aramaic, and many people that prayed in, and worshiped in the language of Jesus, as he would have spoken the prayer, reconstructed that, that prayer half of the Greek version back into Aramaic. Shorts, that's a long, that's, so I gotta move a little more quickly. But that prayer then comes to us in Latin, through the Latin translations, the Vulgate translations of the Bible, and it that Latin translation, translation predominates in Western Europe for over a thousand years and more. And it became a matter of life and death, though, how one prayed that prayer. And it's, it's a fascinating to look at that. The, what we know is that to, at certain times in history, to translate that, into, that prayer into a common language meant death for some people. And so this story is true in English. And that the, the earliest translations we have in English are 1,200 years old. We don't know who translated. If we read it to you today, it would sound very different. You know, uh, Father Ur in the heavenous, you know, something like that. It's a very, it's a very, very different uh, uh, English than ours today. The prayer, along with the Bible, the New Testament, is translated into English by John Whitcliffe, who in his, in his work, he brought him into conflict with the prevailing Roman Catholic Church of Western Europe. And his work was condemned, though he himself, he was not executed by the church, but after his death, he was dug up, burned, and his ashes were spread throughout the, you know, into the into a river. Uh, and he, people, anybody who owned a Bible that had been translated by Whitcliffe could be put to, imprisoned and put to death for owning a Bible in English. And that's in the 1300s, going into the 14, early 1400s. In the 1500s, somebody dared to translate the Bible into English again. Yeah, this was a man named William Tyndale in the, during King Henry VIII's time. This man was eventually uh, hunted down by Henry VIII, uh, his uh, secret service, uh, on the continent. And he was arrested, uh, tried, executed, and then burned at the stake and uh, just for translating the Bible into English. And I say, now the Bible as a whole, but the Lord's Prayer is part of the Bible. And so these early English translations uh, are hard-won translations for mm -hmm. us in English. And I don't want to say that to say that we should therefore honor mm -hmm. this hard-won translation that William Tyndale did, which is very close to what the one that you read earlier, uh, using debts and debtors, as you said. Uh, but these are hard-won. But what I want to honor in that history is the trajectory, nice word, uh, trajectory of the reformers, which is to say the Bible needs to be accessible to people in their own language, in their daily language, so that faith could come into their daily lives. And so we find that to bring this instinct, to bring the prayer, it, uh, the whole of the Bible into daily language, but specifically now we're talking about the prayer. To bring the Lord's Prayer into daily language is a tradition I want to honor and a trajectory I want to honor because in our own, because in our, um, in our own time, we don't want to then ossify or put into stone a translation from 400 years ago. We need it in our own words, in our own language today. And even as I say that, 
I have I've seen great resistance to that kind of movement because it feels like we've always done it this way, thousands of years. It's like, well, maybe 400, but, but, uh, but what I want to honor both on the two sides of that is this, bring it into our daily language, pray the prayer essentially. What is it saying in its essence? And pray those words. Carolyn, when, do you remember when you learned the Lord's Prayer? Have you always known it? Yes. <laughs> I have always known the Lord's Prayer. I say that a bit, I guess, flippantly, but not really, because I was raised in the church. And so always hearing the Lord's Prayer at the church where I grew up, we would sing it. It was part of the worship every Sunday. That's how we that was part of our call to worship was to sing the Lord's Prayer and then going home and then being taught the Lord's Prayer mm -hmm. and then going to Christian schools and saying the Lord's Prayer. So it's always been a part of my life. Now, I learned trespasses <laughs> instead of debts or any other version. And it wasn't until I attended a Lutheran high school that became introduced to another another form of the prayer. But yeah, I'd say it's always been a part of my life. I've been struck as a pastor how many times at someone's deathbed who is not otherwise speaking and the family will gather around a bed and hold hands and pray the Lord's Prayer together and then someone who might not have spoken for a week you see their lips begin to move and you hear a breath and you hear this prayer coming out of someone who's close to death, something that's so deep in them if they were reared in the church, so deep in their spirit and in their bones that it just it just comes out in those moments. Like you said, it, you, it's as though they always knew it. And yet there was a moment in which we learned it, whether we learned it just by hearing it or whether we were taught it. It, there is a point at which we, we heard it, learned it, and when it became our own. Um, one thing that I am struck in the Lord's Prayer is, I think I always learned it, or I, I certainly learned it um, when I was confirmed at 12, but I already knew it. And I already knew it from worship, from praying with others. And so the Lord's Prayer was always a prayer I shared with others. I, I don't have many times in which I sit down and simply pray the prayer myself. I'm usually with others when it's prayer, when it's prayed. And it begins our, right? So what do you think, either of you, about that, that kind of tension between the prayer being our own, deep in our souls, that comes out in moments of uh, extreme moments in our lives, and the prayer that we share with others? Well, I can think of when I first learned this prayer, was uh, it's got an unusual story, uh, but I learned it for a play. Hmm. And the play was the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, in, the sixth, <laughs> in the sixth grade, I was living in, the, in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts growing up. And uh, the character that I played, uh, the Reverend George Burroughs, was accused of witchcraft and so many ac ac accusations against him. And as he's brought to the, the death, the gallows, uh, to be hanged, he, he says the Lord's Prayer is the last thing he does. And in partly in a hope that, because it was, it, was, it was said that witches couldn't say this prayer, uh, they couldn't say this prayer uh, correctly. 
And so George Burroughs got up right before they were about to hang him. He says the Lord's Prayer. He does not stumble. But yet it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't get freed to be kind of this. And he is, and he is put to death. But this instinct to say that this, everybody says, you must say it correctly. There's this, it's, it's not a new tradition to say it, to say it correctly. Or try to, this instinct to say, you must get it right. And so that set an early, an early impression on me that I, what I, um, I had to learn it and memorize it for the play. But I also thought, what an amazing thing that, that, that has to be, it, it's not a magic formula. That's what I would say. I want to say, I'll come out of this and say, it's not a magic formula, this prayer. To say, I later learned it in Latin. Pater noster quiescent sanctificator nomen tuum. I was at a secular high school and I just, for some reason, learned, like to learn Latin prayers. And anyway, I, I, it makes me think, though, I, I did memorize that in Latin, but it's not a magic formula. You know, itself. Some people say you've got to pray it in Latin. It's got to be done exactly this way or the, this King James Version. Again, I keep coming back to it's what is essentially what we're saying. Jesus himself reaches back in time to generations before him. said, how did his ancestors, his parents, his own mother and father, how would they have prayed to God? And he draws that forward in a, a distillation, that another big word, but he brings what is essential from his tradition, saying, pray like this. And so there's something that can connect. When you talked about our, when I pray this prayer, it's something that I can share with other traditions. Mm-hmm. It's because it's not distinctly a, a, a Christian. I mean, I to say that it's, I get, I'm tepping on, stepping on the well, tentative grounds here, but to say it's not a distinctly of a Christian prayer. It is a much more universal prayer. And it's, that's what I love about that. It's a prayer we can share with Jewish friends. It is, in its origin, a Jewish prayer and actually makes no mention of Jesus, even though we call it the essential Christian prayer. But Terrell, how about you on this tension between the prayer as individual and the prayer as shared with others? I don't know that I've had that tension, quite honestly. Saying our doesn't, doesn't preclude the individual nature of the prayer because I am saying it and I may be saying it as an intercessory prayer or in isolation, but it still connects me to others who have prayed that prayer. And I guess taking more of the intercessory leaning, it's it's on behalf of others as well. It's not just for me to pray that prayer. And when I've prayed for myself, I have used a personal pronoun, but it's not been the it's not been our father. That's not my personal prayer typically isn't our father. Like that saying the Lord's Prayer is said in a corporate context more often than not. As you've prayed it over the years or heard others pray it, uh, has there been at any point something that stood out to you, that surprised you, that caught you up short as you heard it in a new way? Uh, what, um, how has the prayer changed for you over time? I'm thinking of a person who I've, long ago, who I heard read, read the prayer or just others who have said it and being moved by them being choked up at a particular point or if it's sung, there being a, a crescendo that happens in the in the song that really kind of celebrates it and, and really makes me think on it in a different in a different way and sometimes it's been linked to the person speaking but i think 
because I'm thinking of a person in particular, but I guess more often than not, it has been through song. And so there's like this, the music swelling and then the words spoken and, and all people are singing the song, whether they know the words verbatim or exact or not. There's just this passion that that's involved in, in the singing and that's been, that's been moving. I think that one of the most startling lines in the prayer is where it says, uh, you know, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Mm. And there's a sense of this connection between, it's, a, it's saying, to, for me, I'm saying to God, open my eyes so that I can see your, I can see you in the world. Basically, that's the basic. I say, how can I see you in the world? And all those, the talk of the divine will, the divine plan, the, 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 all those things, those are all words that skirt around saying, God, help me to see you in the world. You know, because as, and not distancing heaven from earth. So I, that's what I love about that saying is that this prayer brings together, and that's it, it brings together our, what we've separated, heaven and earth, and says, God, let me see you here and now in this world, and, and then moves on from there to say, these are all the ways in which we encounter God and know that we, are, we are, rely so heavily on that encounter with God in our daily bread, in being reconciled to one another, in being guided on the path of this life and being, you know, delivered as that, or, or rescued, emancipated, freed f- from all that is essentially, that can essentially harm what God has created in us, that distorts the image of God in us. And so there's all, everything that flows out of the prayer for me after that moment relies on that sense of heaven and earth together. And that, of course, then I can say this is essentially a Christian prayer because in, that's what I've experienced in Jesus Christ, heaven come down to earth, or however, if we quote Philippians, you know, he, Jesus gave up his Godhead to be born in human form. All those things come together just in that line. So I could, you know, I could go on for a long time, but I, that, that, that line is what startles me the most. One thing that, I, that this prayer reminds me of when I pay attention to it is the simple fact that my own desires, my own needs don't show up until well into the prayer. And they're only one line. Give us this day our daily bread. And it's us, not me. It's not say, give me what I want, which is how so often I begin my prayers and we tend to begin our prayers. I think, dear God, give me what I need, give me what I want. And in this prayer, it begins actually with a a request that God be God. This our Father in heaven, separate from us, holy be your name as a kind of imperative. It's not simply your name is holy, it's make your name holy. May your name be holy in all things and in all the world. That to say, God, you are separate and yet we want you here. God, be God in all things, in all times. That's the first thing that I pray in this prayer. And it's, it's quite a while before I get down to what we need. Uh, it's first, let God be God on earth as in heaven. You know, expand the universe to include all that is, both earth and in heaven. Unite and bring this together. Then we can figure out what we need. Let's get the, the thinking straight. Then we can get to our own needs. What else stands out in this prayer? What about the forgiveness and this whole, this phrase at the end that we, we wrestle over about lead us not into temptation. Even the Pope recently 
acknowledge that that's, a, that that's not a translation of preference because it seems to suggest that God leads us to translation or to temptation, but that a better translation would be let us not be led into temptation. Um, does that stand out to you? What else in that sort of last part of the prayer is uh, worth talking about in, in a brief podcast? Maybe it's because I've been with the prayer so long. Like I said, part, I mean, infancy, like always hearing the prayer, that some of the conundrums or, or some, of the, some of the issues that people have with the Lord's prayer don't bother me. Like I don't have, like, I don't have any reservations about trespasses versus sins or, or versus debts. It's, I don't have any reservation about lead us not into temptation and who's who's doing the leading and whatnot. And I guess some of that comes more from the later story of Christ where it does say that the Holy Spirit led uh, Jesus into the desert and we know that that was uh, to be tempted. So it's not as though it's not theological, you know, that it doesn't have a, a, a place actually. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I read it and I say it and I agree, I guess, is, is the conclusion of all that. It's we address God first and acknowledge who God is and because God is God, and we rest with that in a moment. And then, as you say, then we go to, you know, the forgiveness component or no, our needs and then forgiveness. It's God is God. And then, you know, thank you for giving us our needs or, or you know, please give us our needs. And then... And then forgive us, though, for what, what we've done. Um, but still kind of like the graciousness, though. It's still God is the source and God is gracious in giving us what we need. And then God is gracious in forgiving us. So I just go along with it. Well, let me ask the uh, one of the big theological questions about this prayer that has certainly come up in parts of the church in recent decades. And that's the very first two words, our Father. In fact, in Catholic tradition, the prayer is often called the Our Father. And yet we've also come to understand that God is not a father as we know earthly fathers. God is not male as we know men on, in our life experience. God is above and beyond. God is parent uh, or parenting. There are some translations or interpretations of this prayer that begin eternal spirit or O oh, great spirit. Uh, and yet those those words, our Father in heaven, are so essential. How do we, um, uh, do we continue praying? Should we continue praying our Father? In, and, uh, or how do we continue praying those two words at the beginning of this prayer while still expanding or teaching well in the church about what we mean when we say Father as opposed to mother or parent? I think that the language of, the language of Father in that sense is is a relational word. I mean, for me, that it's it, there's a language of intimacy in the word Father. I mean, for some, I mean, some people that's not going to be true. But the language, the language of Father, is can be a very intimate word, along with Mother. It's a very primal word. I'll, I'll just talk about. It. it goes all the way back into European. All the Indo-European languages have a word very close to Father, Mother, whereas Parent 
it, it, in some ways it is a more, more clinical word. It's, mm. it's like a, it's, a, it's like a word that's used in therapy, you know, I mean, or I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, well, I mean, to say it's a much more clinical. Word. I don't go home and say, oh, parent. Right. You're right. <laughs> it, so what, what I think about that is that for me, even though I too say, I don't, I don't understand God as in terms of the earthly fathers I've experienced, but uh, the word at its heart for me suggests an intimate relationship that is primal uh, to, you know, not just primal, but it, it, there is the potential for love and for compassion and for I don't, all of those things that are suggested by Father. And so I understand when we, those who want to stretch that to say eternal spirit or that, but so far I haven't found a word that's all-encompassing and yet creates the same kind of deep bond uh, that's that's a potential in, with the word father. Terrilyn, what do you have to teach us about that? Well, we discussed the, I mean, we, we were inheriting the, this prayer, right? And so a lot of what we inherit, it it comes from, it comes from a place. And then, but once we get it, we, we can scrutinize or, or we can, you know, study it and, and whatnot. And I think that's what's what's happening. Kind of what I guess leaning to what Mike is saying, that you just have people that don't have the same relationship in their lives with their father. And so that word is it is I want to say repulsive, but it's it's definitely a repel is repellent, right? And so what we could do is say, how do you reconcile the word father in the original intention. Um, maybe maybe it is using mother, but that assumes that the person saying it has a, a healthy relationship with his or her mother, you know? So we, we constantly seek to find these words that, that get at the heart of who God is in our lives. And so maybe it isn't so much father in and of itself, but it's like, what is the, what is the role? Like what is the purpose? And and so coming at it from that angle and and not so much father, mother, spirit God, but what is this word seeking uh, to to define or describe a being that's what an ineffable, right? Like any metaphor we use for God, we we have to continually remind each other and remember ourselves that they're metaphors and never perfect and yet evocative of a meaning. And the more, uh, the more uh, metaphors we can use alongside them to illuminate them, the more we see the facets of the jewel and uh, don't get confused by one facet, but see the or sense the whole jewel. Uh, I thought maybe in closing today, uh, I'd read a, a version or an interpretation of the Lord's Prayer that was actually sent by a member of our congregation, Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, in the context of some discussions of the Lord's Prayer we were having. And he sent me an email, a version of the prayer by Terry Wildman, translator and editor of uh, the uh, a version of the New Testament called First Nations Version, an indigenous translation of the New Testament that uh, brings Native American themes into a reading of the New Testament. And I was so um, moved by this version of the prayer, I thought I might close with it today. O oh, great spirit, our Father from above, we honor your name as sacred and holy. 
Bring your good road to us where the beauty of your ways in the spirit world above is reflected in the earth below. Provide for us day to day the elk, the buffalo, and the salmon, the corn, the squash, and the wild rice, all the things we need each day. Release us from the things we have done wrong in the same way we release others for the things done wrong to us. Guide us away from the things that tempt us to stray from your good road and free us from the evil one and his worthless ways. Aho, may it be so. Amen. Thanks for joining today. We hope that you all will uh, come back to our Out of the Park series at the Fran Park Center and uh, listen to other podcasts and participate in other educational offerings from the center.